folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner. I'm your co-host. I'm happy to be riding the river with you today, folks. And we got another great guest who's going down the river with us. Ten-time world record-breaking explorer, speaker, entrepreneur, and expert on mindset. His feats include the world's first solo, unsupported, and fully human-powered crossing of Antarctica, speed records for the Explorer's Grand Slam and the Seven Summits, and the first human-powered ocean row across Drake Passage. I wonder if you can guess what number this person is. I'm just going to give you a second to think about it. Let me add a couple things to the list and see if it helps you out. Highly publicized expeditions have been followed by millions and his work has been featured by the New York Times, The Tonight Show, Joe Rogan, and The Today Show. Any guesses on the number yet? He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Impossible First, and now his brand new book, The 12-Hour Walk. Invest one day, conquer your mind, and unlock your best life. I'm going to keep you guessing for a few more minutes, folks. Really, really cool thing. His parents were into the Enneagram way back in the day. So it was batted around in the house, and he was raised understanding the framework. So he comes in swinging, and we're all the benefactors. I'm talking about Colin O'Brady, Enneagram 3 with a four-wing. Strap in, folks. We're riding down a river, and it's got some rapids. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. <laughs> so glad that you're here. And now, without any further ado, here is the host of our show, Ian Crum. Colin O'Brady, Enneagram 3, author of the wonderful new book, The 12-Hour Walk, Invest One Day, Conquer Your Mind, and Unlock Your Best Life. Welcome to Typology. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here with you. All right, man. We were talking earlier about uh, your familiarity with the Enneagram. Tell folks what that is. Yeah, so um, my, I guess it's my great aunt, her name is Loretta, um, my, so my grandfather's sister, um, was really into the Enneagram um, going back into, I guess, probably before I was born. I was born in 1985, so um, before I was born, and uh, the, I guess the journey goes through our family of people kind of thought her as like the, the kooky, my mom, so her aunt, right, is my great aunt, was like, oh, the kooky Aunt Loretta, she's always talking about the Enneagram and this and that, and this thing's silly or whatever, and uh, over time, um, everyone in my family has uh, learned that she actually had uh, quite a bit of wisdom that she was uh, trying to share and impart uh, on, on my mother when she was uh, starting to have kids and then all the way up till, till me now. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been something I've been aware of throughout my life. Um, and through my great aunt, through my mother, um, through my aunts and uncles and cousins now. So guys, my whole maternal, uh, big Irish Catholic family has uh, been following the Enneagram. And I think that's why we're having this conversation. I, I'm a big believer. And I think it's an incredible way to understand and relate to both yourself and of course, others um, when understanding those frameworks. And you know, it makes sense about old Aunt Loretta that, uh, <laughs> that because she's an Irish Catholic and, uh -huh. the, and really the Enneagram earliest origins, yeah. at least in the modern conversation, comes up through the Catholic Church. That's right. Uh, yeah. And through the Jesuits, who really were the ones that uh, brought it into the mainstream conversation. And mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, I'm all for her, and I'm delighted that it found your, its way into the vernacular of, of, your, of your family life. How did you figure out that you were an Enneagram 3? You know, I'm sure you do this because you you've interviewed and you know this this subject matter pretty quickly. I'm sure you go, oh, what what's Dave? What's John? You know what? You know you go, oh, he must be a two. He must be a five. You know, like right? You can kind of you start to you at least have a thought uh, about what that might be. Um, I guess the, the the final discovery is is taking a series of, of those tests uh, that you can do pretty easily online at this point. Um, and every single time I do, it comes back three, 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 three. You know, I try to hack it, and it still comes back three. So I think it's a pretty strong um, uh, reasoning for that. But you know, I have been you know the three, the achiever. Um, I have definitely been pretty. Uh, Ex externally motivated by achievement throughout my life. Um, I do feel a little bit of a shift in that at this phase of my life, but I definitely the patterning of my life. I sit here very humbly with 10 world records and different accolades and achievements. Um, and, you know, my mom always says to me, she's like, yeah, I mean, I knew from the day you were born, you're three. I'm not that surprised. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, the funny, I joke around about this with the three is I'd say that 
the threes that think that they're like winning at the Enneagram because they're like, oh yeah, I'm a three. Like I must be, well, yeah, I'm an achiever. I achieve the thing. That's the achiever. And everyone else is looking at the three like this person's obnoxious. <laughs> Most annoying. <laughs> I'm winning in the Enneagram. I love exactly. <laughs> we actually had a guest in here. Do you remember this? A couple, she was a three. Uh-huh. And she said, no, no, it was a guy. And uh-huh. I said to him something. He goes, this is so awesome because I feel like I'm the best three who's ever been on your show. <laughs> exactly. I do remember that. Yeah. That's hilarious. Well, uh, I knew, I, I read your, your bio and I was like, oh my gosh. I'm not sure I've read a bio more three than this one. And in fact, that's where I'm wearing my hat that says, for those people who are not watching on YouTube, it says doing things on the top of my hat. And that that's in, in part in honor to you, in homage to you, uh, Colin, I have worn my doing things hat, which as a four is not always the case. Um, well, you know, uh, we could go into a long conversation about, you know, the quintessential three characteristics and patterns of thinking, feeling, uh, and uh, behaving and all that stuff. Most of our folks know a lot about that. I want to kind of go a little bit deeper because your your resume, let me just, you, you already will probably say this on the introduction, okay, but I'm going to yeah. repeat it. Yeah. You are a 10-time world record-breaking explorer, speaker, entrepreneur, and expert on mindset uh, your feats include world's first solo, unsupported, and fully human-powered crossing of Antarctica, speed records for the Explorer's Grand Slam, and the seven summits, and the first human-powered ocean row across Drake Passage. I am exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> Just reading that makes me feel, well, actually, it makes me feel like I haven't been a very great <laughs> achiever in my life, but, you know, here we are. Um, sometimes people can feel that way around threes. It's not the threes' fault. It's just the way it stacks up at times. So here's my question for you. You have so many accomplishments and wins. It would be easy for someone to think, does this guy ever fail? Like, has this guy ever failed? Has he ever had a failure he can't bounce back from? So I want to just begin, you know, kind of diving a little bit behind the, the curtain here. Tell me about some failures, and I would be most interested in a failure that you haven't completely or ever bounced back from. It's mm, a great question. Um, so, and I'm very, I'm very uh, transparent about this in my most recent book, The Twelve Hour Walk. It's a. Uh, no, we'll talk more about the book, but it is ultimately about limiting beliefs, and one of the chapters is uh, the limiting belief that I think holds a lot of this back, which is fear of failure right mm-hmm. um and this book is not a highlight reel of my you know world record accomplishments and things like that it's quite the opposite it's it's framing me uh very genuinely and vulnerably in the context of all the things that i've struggled with both my mental health ups and downs um and to your point in question failure you know just straight up failure now that maybe it's the achiever the optimist in me that loves to frame failure uh in the frame of achievement right so that's the uh i always say um you, you know, you, you either fail or you learn, or you uh, basically failure plus perseverance equals success. So mm-hmm. uh, I definitely frame failure around learning, uh, at least a, that's been a helpful uh, frame for me. Um, but there's been a, a number of things. I mean, if we take it, you know, we're talking a little bit about, I guess, my achievements in 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 sports, I guess, with the 10 world record expeditions that I've had. One thing that people don't know a lot about me um, is I, for 20 years, wanted to be literally every single day, woke up, told every person around me, I'm going to be in the Olympics one day. I'm going to be in the Olympics one day. I'm going to be in the Olympics one day. I'm going to be in the Olympics one day. I'm going to be in the Olympics one day since I was seven years old. Um, and I tried for 15 years as a swimmer, all the way up through being a nationally ranked swimmer in college and fell short of making the Olympics in swimming. And then kind of had rebirth in professional sport and triathlon and spent six years of my life in my 20s fully focused on making the goal of the Olympics and didn't make it just just straight up. I mean, there's just like, there's not like, a, I mean, I could tell a different story, but like the truth is I tried to make the Olympics for 20 years. I didn't. I look at it now in the frame of what I did and now I've evolved into doing these other athletic pursuits. Now, another one is I burnt myself in a fire. I was jumping a flaming jump rope when I was 22, completely my own fault as an able-bodied, strong-willed, competitive, sort of in-my-body athlete. And I did the stupidest thing ever and literally wrapped a kerosene-soaked 
flaming jump rope around my body and lit my body completely on fire to my neck. I had to jump into the ocean to extinguish the flames, which saved my life. Um, but not before about 25% of my body was burned, predominantly my legs and feet. And the doctors looked at me and said, Hey, look, you'll, you know, you'll probably never walk again normally. Um, fortunately I've recovered from that. And my mother, uh, the incredible woman, she has helped me get through that in a lot of different ways, a long road to recovery. Mm. Um, but Again, I love your question because it's like, was that a failure? I do look at that as a massive failure. I mean, I just, and there's no one else to blame. It's just like, I was just being an idiot. <laughs> like I did this thing, I burned the shit out of myself um, and it was terrible. Uh, I also do take strength from that experience. I do look back on that and go, oh, this taught me some of life's greatest lessons. So you would maybe know better than me if that's a, a frame of uh, a three trying to turn tragedy or failure into success for learning um, or, or not. That's certainly been a, call it a coping mechanism or call it optimist. I don't know. It's a somewhere halfway in between probably, um, but that's at least how I frame failure in my life. But I could go on and on and on personally, professionally, things that have certainly not turned out the way that I hoped they would um, and I could definitely live in the failure column for sure. And there's nothing wrong with being an optimist, right? I mean, sevens are, I mean, at times, an unhealthy seven is toxically optimistic, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm a big believer in optimism. Even the research shows that optimistic people tend to move through the world in a more healthy fashion, right? So there's no, there's no problem with that. I think for the three, when it becomes a, a problem is when you move from uh, being an optimist who wants to learn to someone who spins. Mm -hmm. So the, the seven will reframe meaning they'll take a negative and immediately flip it into a positive in order to avoid feeling all the things you and I would feel were we to be in the same situation, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so they lose their job. And then the seven says, yeah, but this is going to be a really great opportunity to do something I've always wanted to do. And they're, they've reframed a negative there. And then what they've done is they're trying to avoid the feelings of failure, discouragement, fear of what am I going to do for a living? You know what I mean? And they, mm -hmm. they've turned it up on its uh, upside down what a three will do oftentimes in the face of failure is they'll spin it and the spin is more like how do i take the failure and make it a success mm -hmm. so it's not trying to make a negative a positive which is what the seven does it's how do i turn the story into a success that will win the admiration of others instead of because threes don't want to ever message failure to other people Mm. So they're going to they're going to spin it to make it look like a success. Like we just had Maddie Jackson on who's Alan Jackson's daughter. Right. She lost her husband tragically and she was really honest about the fact that she knew she was going to write a book and mm. she could she could even see herself spinning it mm. if she's if she so wanted to. Right. But she had to force herself to kind of sit in the pain. That's so that's that's right. I just remembered that interview. And what was so amazing is the number of times she questioned her motivations yeah. over and over. Like, am I using my husband's death right. as a as a way to build a brand? Mm -hmm. you, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And that's the spin. So how does that no, I, I think it's. I think it's interesting. I, I haven't. I haven't dug that deep into that specific, but it, it resonates with me for sure. Even mm -hmm. in the way that you're talking about her, like she's aware of this, and then going like, well, what what's the line between? Because I think. For me, I love I love stories, right? Like I love sharing stories, um, and that's why I'm an avid reader. That's why I've written two books. But really, I just love absorbing other people's stories because I think each person walking this planet has something to offer, to share, to 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 learn from, right? And in all sorts of different broad ways. I think storytelling, you know, going back, you know, to ancient times is how we've passed information and knowledge along forever. But then you ask, start you get into the art of storytelling, so to speak. And you're like, right, you know, there's like the classic hero's journey, or if you looked at like a three act script in Hollywood or whatever, it's formulaic, like in some context, right? It's like the call to adventure, and then the belly of the whale, some setback, and then slowly overcoming that to like victory to returning home. It's, it's oversimplified, right? And it is interesting in moments of setback in my life, just to use, let's use the burnout accident for an example. There's not awareness for me in that moment. But I'm not unaware of the fact that there's an interesting polarity in the story, just by true of this is truth of my life, that I was burned in a fire, I was told I would never walk again normally, and then I walked across Antarctica by myself on those same two legs. Like I am aware of the fact that that creates more of a balance than in a story, 
that is a true story, right? Than the um, oh, that's not my life. I I did not was not born with a silver spoon. I grew up very uh poor, but um, you know, the equivalent of like I was born with a silver spoon. I had all the best coaches, and now I'm the best athlete in the world, and I did all these things. Like that's just not as good of a story. It's just not as interesting to mm-hmm. a human resonance like with that. And so you mentioned this woman, Maddie. Um, it's interesting. I guess, again, it's, it's, it's not, I don't have an answer to the question or then just a curiosity of like, what is the dividing line between that? Cause that's her truth. She tragically lost her. It sounds like her husband mm-hmm. and she was grieving, I'm assuming and learning from that or whatever, but that is also drawing people in because it's compelling to hear about that because it's different or unique. And there's a lot to be lesson learned to be from these sort of peak moments, whether those are peak negative moments or peak good moments or both in between. So yeah, but I can I can see how that three mindset because I can resonate that with a little bit of how the difference between turning a negative into a positive versus spinning. I haven't had that it said it to me that way, but um, yeah, it's something to something to think about for sure. Yeah, I think with Maddie, the 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 thing that I was so impressed with was this the self awareness that I have the ability to uh, turn even something tragic into something that will leverage my brand Mm -hmm. and really facing up to that's an embarrassing admission you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like that's like when i heard her go that's like damn girl you went there like you just Mm -hmm. said something intensely vulnerable yeah and you know one of the things that's true of threes is as you probably know is they have probably more trouble dealing with their feelings than any other type like Mm. like recognizing their own feelings so Twos are wildly attuned to the feelings of others, fours to their own feelings, yep. and threes would be like, I don't really even know what to do with my feelings. I don't quite know how to name them. You know, I can name the basic ones, but eh, you know, and I have trouble identifying the feelings of others is a typical report from, from a three, right? Yeah. So what I loved about what she said was I had to, to really allow myself to stay in feelings that didn't feel like achiever feelings like Mm -hmm. grief paralysis sadness you know and i thought damn man she has done some work Mm -hmm. to to be able to to do that and not jump out really really fast from the feelings and say yeah but this is great you know what i mean and like Mm -hmm. this is what i learned and this is so awesome and it's like nope that just sucks you know what i mean like so i'm uh i'm married to a two um like a true core two two maybe a two wing one but like a very kind of almost two two no wing like just a pure mm-hmm. pure two my wife jenna who's a, an incredible an incredible human and well first and foremost having this understanding in our relationship has been invaluable in fact i don't and we've been together for almost 15 years and we've built our businesses together. We've dreamed together. We've created, you know, all sorts of everything that we've built in our life has been built together over the last 15 years. Um, very intertwined life, business, career, et cetera. And I, if we did not have this understanding, truly the understanding of the Enneagram, um, I'm not sure where we would be because without that, um, empathy or understanding of actually like looking at each other and going, we are actually seeing this differently, like truly not just seeing this, but experiencing whatever event, whether that's tragedy, whether that's success, whether that's other people in the room with us, whether well, all the things, you know, you guys tell me what you think, but I think it is pretty common without an understanding of the Enneagram or some sort of frame on realizing that people are just sort of foundationally or fundamentally different in the way that they're seeing the world. It's easy to overlay your own perspective, right? I'm like, why aren't they seeing this my way? Like, right, it's so yeah. obvious. Like, are, why are they not seeing it that way? And it's been so valuable to our marriage, you know, just like anybody else, we've had our ups and downs, but we've had a really beautiful, loving relationship. And very early on in our relationship was made, we were made aware like, oh, Colin's a three, Jenna's a two. And what does that mean for a three and a two to navigate um, life together? And in, in its healthiest form, it's a uh, it's a symphony. It's it's really beautiful. It's a really nice yin to a yang, um, and, and of course there are times when that 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 doesn't work that symbiotically. And it's interesting to be aware of those moments as well. All right, so we need to get you and Jenna onto a show, and we'll just talk about three with two combinations. Yeah, yeah. marriage yeah. combinations. You'll get an hour of free therapy, and you know, perfect. We're, perfect. You know, we're in. Sign us up. Three hundred bucks in your credit box. Okay, so you know, <laughs> right. however you want to put it, right. 
All right, so uh, I want to get to talking about your amazing new book, uh, The 12-Hour Walk, uh, Invest One Day, Conquer Your Mind, Unlock Your Best Self in just a moment. Um, but I want to ask you a question. I, I can't believe I've never spoken about this with Enneagram 3s before because I think more than any other type, this is a struggle for them. Hmm. I want to read to you a quote from the Harvard Business Review about imposter syndrome. And I can't believe I've never talked to 3s about this because I hmm. think probably for them, this is the big difficulty, right? Here's the, here's the description of it from the Harvard Business Review. Imposter syndrome is loosely defined as doubting your abilities and feeling like a fraud. It disproportionately affects high achieving people who find it difficult to accept their accomplishments. Many question whether they're deserving of accolades. Hmm. Mm. So on a scale of one to 10, 10 being neurotic, crazy neurotic, one being insanely healthy, are, do you suffer at all from imposter syndrome given all the accomplishments and things that you've had in your life? Yeah, I think I suffer from this. I think I think it's only, at least it feels only natural to suffer from this. I think the way it shows up for me is in, in two ways. And, and it's kind of funny. The, the second way I think is more funny than the first way. The first way is I never, whatever room that I'm in, um, I truly, truly don't feel like the, the smartest person in the room, the most successful person in the room, the most accolade person in the room, like whatever. Although I guess uh, there's certainly rooms that I'm in where that would be, you know, kind of objectively true. So whether that's imposter syndrome or not, but the other way, I think that's a funny way that has shown up in my life. And it's almost like the reverse psychology of it. It's like mostly like the the, it makes me think about a little bit what you're thinking about before, which is like how to like kind of spin something. It's a little bit the, the showed up in my life as a fake it till you make it kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, there's been a lot of times in my life. So I saw one that just comes to the top of mind. I love a conversation like this because this is just like literally this is I haven't thought about the, any of this stuff. This is great, man. I'm really enjoying this conversation. Um, thanks for the free therapy session. Jen and I will be back. <laughs> um, the, uh, <laughs> the, um, so I, I skipped third grade. And I was already young for my grade growing up. And when I skipped their grade, I spent, I have five older sisters and they'll tell you, and I agree with them, that I spent the next, you know, the rest of school, whatever, the next 10 years, just being like, I'm Colin O'Brady and I skipped third grade. <laughs> like, it's the stupidest thing ever. <laughs> but like, just being like, oh, I'm like, well, what? You were just so smart at cursive and fraction, like whatever. Like, uh, there's more of the stories. Must like my third grade teacher was so annoyed with me that they, they had a split grade class and then she's going to have to have me for another year. And there's like, oh, just let me go to fourth, basically. I'm sick of this kid. Um, he's disruptive in my class. But anyways, I took that as an achievement. If we're talking about the Enneagram, like, I took that mm. as a true achievement. Now, literally, it was probably three years ago. So I'm 37 years old right now. Let's say I was 35, 34. And it hit me one day. I woke up one day and I was like, man, I probably should have been held back a year, not skipped forward a year. In fact, being skipped forward a year may have done me a disadvantage in a number of things, not least of which is I'm an athlete in sports. I'm, you know, you know whatever, I haven't grown as much, you know, all these things. But I chose to be like, I did it. I achieved this. Now, fast forward to the fake it till you make it imposter syndrome is I, I uh, went to Yale and I was a public school kid from Portland, Oregon with no exposure to the Northeast, to whatever, you know, whatever Ivy League colleges, universities. Um, the Yale swim coach calls to recruit me. I'm 16 years old, senior year of high school. And the Yale swim coach calls. My, my mom hands me the um, landline phone in our house, which then the coach calls and says, hi, this is the swim coach from Yale University. We're here to recruit you. And my genuine response was, Yale, where's that? my mom just like just like just like hitting her just like oh my god like, that was your opening line like come on you know thankfully they didn't hold that against me they let me in i got a great education but i showed up to yale 17 years old and the precocious achiever part of me was like i know everything about the world and I literally got in a fist fight on the first day of school with a lacrosse player because I was trying to show how manly I was, but mostly being like, I don't even know what lacrosse is. We don't play that on the West Coast. Like, that's a made up game. And these guys like, you know, Long Island lacrosse player, like, you know, like the coolest guy in school at prep school, which is not my frame on the world. I spent so many years of my life pretending that I had it all figured out. And I will tell you what, I'm finally not able enough, vulnerable enough to look back on those years and go, I was young. I was immature 
And I was completely overwhelmed by this Ivy League mm. campus and these kids who were the son of a senator or dad works at this investment bank or whatever. But my achiever or spin nature was to pretend as if that didn't matter or I knew everything or something like that. So my imposter syndrome is fully there. And the way that it has actually been expressed has been by a fake it till you make it. I know everything precocious uh, versus a vulnerable of like, huh, this is different. Teach me. I'd like to learn about this. Huh? Like, you know, rather than that sort of more empathetic approach to that. So anyway, it's not something I've thought about or spoken about, but uh, a very um, thought provoking question for sure. It's very common that threes always, always, that's, that's always a dangerous uh, word to use. Frequently, uh, appear to have it all together even when they don't like and it's actually very common with eights did you know that anthony mm -hmm. yeah like a lot of times eights look like they know exactly what they're doing when inside there's a lot of self-doubt right and that's the same with threes like threes uh look confident when the company is going under like everyone mm -hmm. else is panicking but the three is like nope we got this you know it's like or we got them just where we want them and it's like uh that's very common for threes uh, that's part of, I think, the persona. And everyone's got a persona, but that's the sure. the kind of projected image of the three. Um, and, you know, again, uh, yeah, like I said, very, very characteristic, a hallmark feature of, of, of threes would be just that, uh, particularly in a situation where they may have felt uh, internally a little overwhelmed and not mm -hmm. sure what to do. And so there's, an, there's a compensatory action right which is i'm you know i'm going to overcompensate in the opposite direction and then you end up your strategy ends up slapping you in the face right uh, or having a lacrosse player <laughs> slap me in the face by somebody else bigger and stronger than me <laughs> i love that you're looking back like now reflecting yeah. and recognizing oh man i was actually overwhelmed how does that translate to today do you, can you check in and like, oh man, I'm feeling overwhelmed in this moment instead of like sort of defaulting to the same sort of behavior? Do you make adjustments now? Yeah. So I have a, I mean, I know you're interviewing me, but I, I do have a question for you, but I'll, I'll preface the question, which is I'm certainly super, super, super proud of that resume that you read off the achievements that I've had um, in, in my life. And I also feel a shift. At this phase of my life, I feel a softening. I feel a, um, you know, and truly, and, and this is not, this is not because I'm, you know, right now, you know, promoting my new book, etc. Is I ask a question, a framing question at the beginning of the twelve-hour walk, and I ask this question through the lens of a, a story I tell um, in the book about meeting these billionaire guys, basically, and asking this question: What's your Everest? And I ask it to school kids in my nonprofit. I ask it to people of every age to say, "I wanted to climb Everest when I was a kid." The achiever saying, "I wanted to point at that mountain and say, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't have the money. I don't have this, but one day I'm going to go stand on top of that mountain." And I've been fortunate to stand on top of that mountain twice. Most recently. Um, taking my my two wife who had no interest in ever climbing cop ever and I was like you gotta come you gotta do this and so I got her to have that achievement as well and, and sometimes kicking and screaming but she made it and she did awesome but I asked the question what's your Everest because I ask it from the lens of it's an obvious metaphor you know what do you want to achieve what do you what do you want what do you want your life to look like what goals are you setting for yourself etc at the end of the book um, again, it's not giving away the book, but there's a passage in the book where I say, look, I've been asking you all this question as I'm speaking directly to the reader. What's your Everest and how can I help support you get there? And I say my Everest, I answer the question myself, my, and this is a true answer. My Everest is now to inspire 10 million people to take this 12-hour walk. And we can talk about what that is. It's a quest. It's a day of an investment in yourself. And when I say the question I have for you guys is that I truly, with 10 world records, I'm not saying I'm never going to go set another world record. I'm not saying I don't have big other ambitions, you know, expedition wise, but it's not the same burning desire, like deep in my like bones that it was when I set out to walk across Antarctica solo to prove to the world that this thing possible thing could be done. Um, and I definitely, what speaks to my heart and soul in this moment is using that to impact other in a, in a positive way. So the question is, 
do people ever i'm not saying i'm not a three i think i'm very much a core three but do people globally do people ever shift numbers throughout life or do they become more like lean more into one of the wings or is there ever someone's like man this guy was a three all the way till this moment and then this massive shift to whatever and eight? i don't know I, i'm actually just, i'm just curious if that is that happen or is it sort of like you're born and something happens in early childhood you kind of are in this range bound frame throughout life it's a great question. A uh, couple of things. One is, is that you actually are all nine numbers on the Enneagram. You're right. just dominant in one. Right, right, right. right. So that's, that's one thing. Um, traditional Enneagram teaching says you will always be your number. We're never going to shift to another number. Now, uh, meaning, so for you, if the unconscious motivation of the three is a need to succeed, to appear successful, and to avoid failure at all costs, that will always be a broken line of code in you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I mean, that can lead to some great things, and it can lead to a lot of really bad things, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's always going to be there. However, as you get older, right, and we should talk about midlife in a second because that would be helpful, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, you can evolve, not change your number, but evolve in your number, right? So you gain wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. you, that you didn't have it. You know, you went to, you know, Yale at 17. I'm hoping that at 37, your response to the lacrosse player would be a lot different. <laughs> yes. Right? Well, yes, you, it would why, be very different. Right, because you've evolved. Right. right. As a human being. We could say matured, but I think evolved is, you know, probably a, in this situation a little bit more accurate. So I think... Uh, we evolve in type um, and particularly in the second half of life. And mm -hmm. you're bumping on it. And in fact, I don't think that 40 is like the crossing line into the second half of life. I think people go in it at different times. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I've met 28-year-olds in the second half of life because they, they've had a, some kind of catastrophic or major, you know, uh, challenge right an illness something that has upended them and they it has catapulted them into asking different questions and maybe that's how we could separate the two halves of life mm -hmm. in the first half of mm -hmm. life you have one set of questions you're trying to answer mm -hmm. in the second half of life it's a whole new set of questions and if you're 50 and still trying to answer the questions of the first half of life it's tragic. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like, oh, golly, are you still there? And, and so I think in the first half of life, people are dealing with issues of adequacy and proving themselves. It's all about how do I show the world that I have what it takes uh, and that, you know, I'm the best hunter-gatherer there is. And then mm -hmm. in the second half of life, I think the question sort of changes and it, it the, the questions start to become around more about the soul, about the internal spiritual life, right? If you want to put a, another way of putting on it, let's face it, in the second half of life, you start to think about dying. Right, right. And so you're, you're beginning to say, what are the larger existential questions that I have to address in this part of life, right? And like I said, some 28-year-olds are already there because they've, had, they've been forced into it, right? But typically it's, you know, 35, 40, 45, somewhere in there that those things, that shift begins to change, which may be something that you're, you're experiencing, right? Uh, and it's a beautiful transition. It's a beautiful transition if you embrace it. If, if you try to push it away because you're like, no, I, I still got shit to prove. I still got, you know what I mean? Instead of saying, no, I'm moving into a different season of life. It doesn't mean I'm not going to give up another expedition. It just means there are larger questions that may eclipse the ones I've been asking to date. I How, love that. I love that. Yeah, that, that lands with me for sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful transition. And, um, you know, I, that part of what I do is I, I have uh, a number of guys, six guys that I work with three weekends a year. They're very, very, very successful men. And we spend one weekend in Aspen, one in Scottsdale, one in Nashville. And these second half of life questions is what we spend the majority of our time on mm -hmm. and uh it's it's a great cohort and it's so i love getting into the water of of that transition with people and helping them to navigate it it's super exciting i want to go back to uh you as a younger kid have you read i'm sure you have andre agassi's book open yeah i love that book yes, is that not a great book 
an amazing book. Yeah. That, yeah. That's when the, I was that... writing my memoir, the, my previous book, The Impossible First, I was, you know, of course, you start thinking, well, what are the memoirs that really impacted yeah. me? Just both writing style, but story, arc, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's like top, top for me. Okay. Uh, it's a, it's a masterpiece cool. for sure. I'm so excited you like it because I love <laughs> that book. And one of the reasons I love it is it is the quintessential Enneagram 3 story. Mm-hmm. It is amazing. And, and it kind of shows what happens when the Enneagram story goes sideways. The three yeah. story goes sideways. He's got this dad who is wants him to become someone other than who he is to gratify his own dreams and desires for him. Does that make yep. sense? Oh, for so, sure. In fact, at one point in the story, he says, I memorized this line. He said, my father confused his love for me with his love for tennis. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes with little threes, you know, they over-identify with accomplishments and they will go around saying things like, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm uh, Colin O'Brady and I skipped third grade. And now what happens is they no longer are reporting something that happened. They, they've now sort of uh, revealed that they have now over-identified who they are with the accomplishment. Like right. that's who I am, not what I've done. It's who I am. And that happened to Andre Agassi, too. And then, of course, he gets to retirement and he reveals to everybody that he always hated tennis. And right. He always wanted to be a soccer player, but he did it to win the love of his dad. Yeah. And that is so typical of threes. Did you have someone at that point, or as you look back on your life, and you're like, well, part of the reason I became a three is I, I felt I needed to achieve to win the love of blank person. Um, it's interesting. I, I definitely have a very different, um, athlete story than, uh, Andre Agassi. There's, there's also a lot of parallels to Andre Agassi's life, to Tiger Woods's life, to, uh, Lance Armstrong's life. And just in the context, different Lance Armstrong, but the context of kind of chip on your shoulder or something you're really pressing up against. That's like pushing hard, you know, against sort of your own nature, I suppose. Um, that, very small tangent, but that scene where Andre Agassi and he's five years old and his dad makes him hit like 2000 tennis balls before he can like it, get dinner with like, they call it the dragon, like the tennis ball machine. That's just like, I, <laughs> that scene is just right. like so resonant. Like you can't come home for dinner dude. it's hitting these balls. And there's so many balls are on the court that it, the balls are bouncing off the other balls. And they say, that's why maybe he's one of the best returners in the tennis game because weird spins and stuff. He was out there from a little kid, but, um, my mom is a three. Um, and my mom is probably the largest, you know, for sure, the largest influence on my life um, throughout childhood and all the way into adolescence and early adulthood, for sure. Um, she continues to be a huge influence. So I do think that there is part um, of, I don't, I don't know if it's the winning of the love. And she certainly, her way of doing that was very different than the heavy handed, like you can't have dinner without, you know, this or that. But there was very much, you know, people people ask her, you must be so afraid as a mother, you know, your, your son's out there doing these things that are inherently risky. You know, before I walked across Antarctica, a couple years before that, somebody died attempting the same crossing. Um, you know, people have gotten seriously injured or killed in the, the types of things that I have done. Right. And people have interviewed my mother and asked that question. And she says, kind of with a coy smile on her face, she says, you know, careful what you wish for when you tell your kid from the day they were born, they can do anything they set their mind to. Mm. They can achieve everything that they set their mind to. And so less of from a place of, I would at least characterize Andre Agassi's context as a pretty toxic environment, a pretty rough environment that ultimately kind of broke his spirit later in life um, in a lot of ways, at least from the outside looking in over what he shared. Um, Whereas I don't think that's the case, but I do think that there was a little bit of like, I mentioned the Olympics before. I was a seven-year-old kid watching the Olympics and I watched uh, Pablo Morales win the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona in the 100 butterfly. And for whatever reason, I was just, you know, I was, NBC did a good job marketing that story to me or something like that. I was lit up. I was like, oh my God, he, you know, jumping on the couch and like whatever. And my mom turned to me, and this is a very foundational moment in my life. She turned to me and she said, the achiever that she is, she was like, well, do you want to win an Olympic gold medal? And I was like, yeah, I want to win an Olympic gold medal. And she was like, great, let's talk about it. You know, let's literally let's talk about it. So she actually mapped out for me as a seven-year-old, not how am I going to, you know, all the training and all this kind of stuff. But she's like, well, what age are Olympic swimmers? And what age are you now? And so what Olympics might that be? And how many years do you have to work towards that? Like as a seven-year-old kid, she started mapping out a road toward 
achievement for me. Now, I have looked at that in a very loving context as someone who kind of got me and understood me and was like, realized that kind of helping me with these carrots, it's very similar to how she helped me recover from this burn accident by encouraging me to set a goal, which was a train for a triathlon. And that, you know, gave me the inspiration to learn how to walk again and race this first triathlon. And the first triathlon I ever raced after this burn accident, I won uh, the Chicago triathlon. Um, but yeah, I would say that the three in my mom definitely impacted her parenting style. She was in her early twenties when she had me. So she was like, you know, didn't necessarily have the wisdom of middle age or, uh, you know, trending towards, you know, she's in her early sixties now. Um, so yeah, certainly, uh, interesting to look back on that. All right. Let's talk about your, your new book. Okay. And I'm going to remind people of the title again, the 12 hour walk, invest one day, conquer your mind, unlock your best life. We got a, we got about 15 minutes left. Let's talk about it. Give people a 50,000 foot flyby of the book. Yeah. So, uh, I'm really, really excited about this book. My first book was the memoir about my solo crossing of Antarctica. Also extremely, extremely proud of that book, but this book is a different kind of book. Um, you know, for lack of a better word, it's a personal development, uh, kind of book, but told from a rich storytelling point of view. If you like adventures, if you like thrilling stories, or if you just like, you know, page turning kind of book, this is still that this is not a dense textbook, but the frame on it is really, I believe that we all have a series of limiting beliefs that are holding us back in any number of capacities, not holding back from achievement. The book is actually very intentionally not written from the lens of achievement, but more from the lens of fulfillment. Um, but it's to say, you know, I asked, you know, my online audience, thousands and thousands of people, the same question, you know, what's holding you back from you living your best life or being your best self? And you ask thousands of people a question, you might, you know, think you're going to get thousands of answers, but instead I got the same 10 answers thousands of times, um, which is what I kind of distilled into what I think are the 10 most common limiting beliefs. Mm. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I'm not strong enough. I'm afraid of failure. What if people criticize me? And interestingly enough, of course, certain ones of those resonate with other people. And I'm sure we could break down what Enneagram numbers each one of those limiting beliefs are more likely to affect uh, versus other Enneagram numbers. Um, absolutely. But the book is really a book about mindset. Um, but at its larger core, it's a call to action. It's a call to action that says, the, the book is great. It'll entertain you. It's full of wisdom and advice and, and things, but it's actually saying, but you want to imprint these lessons deeply. I'm inviting you to go on a 12 hour walk, mm. um, which uh, probably worthy of saying, you know, what the origin story uh, is of that, you know, where did this 12 hour walk idea come from? But at its core, it's walking out your front door, putting your phone on airplane mode, taking one day to walk in the stillness, no music, no podcasts, um, and he doesn't, it's not an endurance challenge. You can take as many breaks as you want. My 77 year old mother-in-law has done this by walking one time around her block, sitting on her front porch for an hour and walk another time around her block. My ultra marathon friend has done this by doing 50 miles in 12 hours and neither him nor my mother-in-law are doing the 12 hour walk better than the other person there. It meets you literally right where you're at, but in our hyper digitally connected world, it's rare. It's rare that people take this moment, even just one day to check in with their selves, their own thoughts, have some self-awareness of what's spinning in their mind, um, while also at least being slowly in movement and outside. So that's really the premise and the core call to action. Let's talk about some of those self-limiting beliefs. I recently wrote a book called The Story of You, and the premise of it is, is that the nine Enneagram types not only reveal a personality style, but they reveal the nine archetypal stories that people gravitate toward and inhabit during childhood unconsciously, right? And this is a narrative understanding of the human life, right? We all we all tell a story about who we are and to others and to ourselves, right? And oftentimes those stories are broken, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they're supported by limiting beliefs, right? So a limiting belief for a three might be, um, if I don't succeed, if I don't come in first, I lost. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that's I'm just making that's just off the top sure. of my head. And I think, we, you know, all of us have multiple, multiple limiting beliefs that create, you know, self-defeating stories that we inhabit. Right. And prevent us from reaching the highest expression of who we are. Right. So how is it that we can, in your mind, begin to unwind or let's put it that way, unwind the negative self-limiting beliefs and, and find liberation from them. 
Yeah, um, yeah, it's such a good question. We talked to you for hours and hours on this uh, and, and share uh, stories and certainly assimilate your wisdom because you're certainly full of it. Um, full of wisdom, not full of it. As <laughs> um, I was like, I was looking at Anthony like, hit the edit button, dude. Uh, so to kind of ground that uh, actually back a little bit to the 12-hour walk, my answer on that is, the reason that the 12 hour walk to me is an interesting suggestion for folks is, you know, thousands and thousands of people are already taking this walk and all over the world, literally people are signed up. It's free 12 hourwalkcom my website, you can sign up. People are doing this walk out their front door all over the world, every single, every single time zone. So literally every single day, there's somebody doing this walk constantly right now, which is really great and cool and interesting. The essence of the 12 hour walk, of course, a lot of it happens in the 12 hour walk, like actually taking this walk yourself and battling against your own demons and your own mind and, and kind of getting a win on the board, so to speak, um, has a lot of benefits. But to your question, about sort of those personal narratives and how we can fight back against it. One of the most interesting byproducts I've found of the 12 hour walk is this moment right now, which is the first suggestion of it. So mm. I'm, I'm assuming, let's say that someone's listening to this podcast right now and they've never heard of this before we're having this conversation. And now you're listening to this podcast and this guy named Colin O'Brady is saying, hey, I've discovered a way to really shift your mindset in just one day. You should go turn off your phone and put on airplane mode and walk out your front door in silence. And, you know, what I've noticed is that when I say the 12 hour walk experience happens right now is because we have a reaction to that. It's just natural. Something is happening in, in both of your guys' brains and anyone who's listening to this brains when you're hearing the suggestion, one of three things happens. A small, tiny edge case of people would say are like, this is the greatest idea ever. I need this. I'm on the 12hourwalk.com website, like fully joining, like they're in like already. Great. Uh, welcome to the tribe. Love that. And maybe there's a percentage of people, hopefully it's not a ton that are like, this is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. Um, I'm the Deleting this podcast from my phone, I'm unsubscribing and I'm blocking Colin on Instagram, whatever, you know, whatever, They're really just negative. Um, but I think most people are somewhere in the middle, which is just by suggesting something, just by suggesting something that is outside the scope of what most people have ever done, i.e. either walk that far or more than anything, what's most challenging for people is being unplugged, right? It's very, very uncommon to be unplugged like that mm -hmm. in our uh, sort of day-to-day -day lives. So what happens in your brain is that your brain, what I've noticed, is that people start having some loop to it. Yeah, this sounds like an interesting idea, but I don't have enough time. My feet would get tired on hour five. Why would I, why would I want to put myself through that discomfort? Um, you know, if I do this and I tell my friends about it, they're going to make fun of me. I'm going to get criticized by the world of this. Or what if I tell people I'm going to do it and two hours later I have to call an Uber and drive home? Like I'm a total failure. What's interesting and why I say the experience of the 12 hour walk into your question of how we overcome this is this, this moment, whether you take the 12 hour walk or not, I highly recommend that you do, but whether or not this moment of listening to this suggestion is me putting up a mirror to you, a mirror to your own interior dialogue. Because what I have found is the limiting beliefs that you're applying to the 12 hour walk in this moment are most likely the same limiting beliefs that are looping on numerous things throughout your life. And so the 12 hour walk is a beautiful exercise, but in a lot of ways, it's a stand in for growth or a shift. Meaning if the limiting belief of, I don't have enough time to do something like this is popping up in your brain right now, but through the chapter in the book, through your own learning, through your own determination, you actually say, you know what, I'm going to get the babysitter. I'm going to take the day after work. I'm going to figure out how to reorient my schedule and take this 12 hour walk. On the back side of it, you're not going to be gone with the limiting belief. I don't have enough time, but the next time it pops up, you go, oh, hi, hi, limiting belief of time. I remember you. I figured out how to reorient that for this other thing that was important to me. How can I do that before? So ultimately, I think that the 12 hour walk is a very interesting exercise. It's very powerful in the 12 hours itself, but the both the pre and the integration of that experience has a ripple effect that can be extremely long lasting for people. And I've seen that play out for numerous people. And it's amazing. Okay. So someone is asking, okay, well, what am I going to do on this 12 hour walk? And what would I hope to achieve uh, on the back end? I mean, I, I, I'm assuming someone is asking that question. Yeah. So I know we're, uh, we're running short on time. So there's a long answer to that question. I wrote a whole book about it. So check that out. Um, <laughs> no, uh, but, uh, but, um, you know, it, it meets people where they're at, right? Some people are, you know, looking for an edge professionally. Some people are weighing a really big decision in their life, you know, and the book goes into intuition and really diving into your 
you know, gut feeling of things. So the quieting and the stillness of the noise can have all sorts of different impact for people depending where they're at in this moment. I think it's powerful. I've never found a person that says, wow, that was a waste of my time. I really couldn't have used a day of just reflection. But that reflection and what's top of mind um, differs for different people. And so again, I'm not trying to be overly vague. And the book certainly answers that. Also, for people listening, you can walk out your front door when I say silence and stillness. Yeah, if you live in Manhattan, you can still do it. There's cars, there's other people, but it's your own commitment to the stillness and silence. The 12hourwalk.com, as well as the end of the book, has all sorts of FAQs that people ask. Where do I go to the bathroom? How do I, you know, what am I going to drink water? You know, just like normal stuff. Can I bring my dog with me? So I also answer all of those questions um, for people on the website. Um, but there's also guiding questions more to your point of like, what, you know, what is the exploration? Um, and there's a number of, of ways to explore that, but it's also not to... I would never pretend to know where every single person is coming to uh, when they meet the 12 hour walk, because in a lot of ways, just like the question, what's your Everest? It's not what my Everest is. It's not what Ian's Everest is or Anthony's Everest is. It's what's your Everest? Like, what are you exploring um, while you're out there? And then there's an exploration of people that are, but what if I don't know what my Everest is? And so the exploration becomes great. I'm going to use this 12 hours to explore mm. potentially. I want to, my Everest is actually figure out what my Everest is or to explore what my passions are framed mm. in a different light. Gosh, I love this, Anthony. Yeah, me too. I'm going to go on a 12 hour I'm, walk. I'm looking at 12hourwalk.com right now. Uh, I'm loving this. I, I'm going to go on a 12 hour walk. Amazing. Put it on your calendar, whether it's then or another date, and uh, I can't wait to hear about your experience. It's well, very powerful. We will be, uh, my wife and I will be in San Miguel de Allende for the month of September, and so <laughs> okay. I will walk along the cobblestone streets for, uh, for for 12 hours speaking in Spanish. Colin O'Brady, author of the new book, The 12-Hour Walk, Invest One Day, Conquer Your Mind, and Unlock Your Best Self. You just mentioned the website for it. Just say it again for us. It's 12hourwalk.com. That's the numbers, one, two, one, two. 12hourwalk.com. Man, I've so thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for being mm -hmm. with us. And I, I, I can't wait to have you on again. Uh, really, really rich. And thanks for your uh, transparency and uh, mm -hmm. willingness to talk about things behind the three, which is really, really fun for and will be informative for lots of people. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for having me. And I, like you said, uh, uh, Jen and I, are, we're coming back for the free therapy session. So, uh, you know, I'm going to put that in your ledger. All right. <laughs> just, just let us know when. We're ready, man. The 3-2 relationship. Uh, we, could use, we could use the, the hour of therapy. <laughs> we'll, we're happy to provide. Typology Tribe, remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. May you have rest. Until next time.